This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 38 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday, the 3rd of September. Leon, what's on the list for this week? We're starting off with a great interview with Simon Hackett. He's the uh, co-founder of Internode, and he also has a company called Base64 in Adelaide. That's right. It's a a technology incubator, and um, Simon is investing some of the uh, money he got from selling Internode to IINet. So it's going well, and uh, he's going to be talking to us all about innovation. That's right, and the consequences of not having it. And after that, we're going to have a great chat with Stephen Coolis. So, all right, well, let's talk to Simon Hackett. We started by asking him about uh, share options given to the staff members and the taxation rule that says when you get them, you pay tax on them, even if they're not going to make any money in the end. Yeah, absolutely. The, and it sounds like a pretty dry subject, you know, the tax treatment of employee share options. You know, what on earth could that have to do with innovation? What on earth could that have to do with driving company performance? It turns out to be one of the absolute engines of what drives the growth of innovative companies in the US. Uh, And it's something that Australia used to handle better, but many years ago now, there was a change in the tax treatment of share options. And what that meant was if you handed share options to, if if you as a company company owner or a company operator um, gave share options to to key staff in order to give them an incentive to, to make the company work well, you know, if the company work well, the shares become valuable or they list or whatever. Um, and the current tax treatment is such that if you do that, the person that's that's been given those options has to pay the tax on them right now, even though they haven't sold them yet, which is a little bit mad. You know, it's a little bit mad in the sense that none of us want a tax bill for something we haven't actually earned yet. And that, that sheer silliness means that the idea of, of using share options as, a, as an incentive to drive performance in companies just doesn't work in this country. When the law was changed here, a whole lot of companies, Internode included, were, were wanting to do that. And one of my great sadnesses in Internode was that we were setting up to do that in Internode, but that change in treatment made it so insane that we couldn't do so. And it's just a silly thing. It's something I know the current government understands the problem and, and are likely, I'm sure, to be looking at improving it, and I, I would love to see them do that. It's been just just a really standout gap in, in operation in, in the ways to actually drive innovation in this country. seems a bit strange that everyone, including the tax office, would want to tax you now, given that if you do a good job of this, they're going to make much more tax out of you later. Yes. And the whole idea is to drive high performance. And on the other hand, if the company that, that's handed out the options does fail, well, you know, it's then someone's actually paid tax on something that they've never received. You know, and they, they undoubtedly at that point go back and ask for a refund, but it's all a bit silly. The, the, the horse is at the back of the car. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just backwards. And I've got, I, I, to this day, can't understand why that change was made. And neither can I think anyone else in business. It just seems like a, like a standout problem. There are other things that, that cause places like Silicon Valley to work better than here for innovation, but the, the, it really sits on, the, on two pillars. The share option treatment, which absolutely drives the enormous growth of technology companies in the States. Apple being one of them. Apple being one of them, many others. You know, the whole idea that you can be a shareholder in a company worth very little at the moment that might be worth something big later, it drives a lot of people to perform well. And it means the company does great, a lot of those people do great, but that's, and that starts a virtuous cycle of those people then doing it again with their own companies, and there's a huge history of that. The other thing Silicon Valley is really good at is not punishing people for failure when they innovate. I think culturally, it's it's seen as a, more of a negative in Australia. If you if you start a company up and it fails, then oh dear, you're a failure. In America, if you had two or three failures like that, 
you're experienced. You've learned what caused those failures. This time maybe it'll work and you can still attract investors to go do it again if you've demonstrated that you knew what you were doing and you knew why the failure happened. Have another crack. Some VCs won't look at anybody unless they have had a failure. Yeah, precisely. You know, it's that old thing about human beings, right, that we, we learn much more from our failures than we do from our successes. So the idea that a single failure can kind of mark you off as not being investable, you know, that that's that's intrinsically silly. If someone's clearly got talent and there's an exterior reason why the failure occurred and they understand that and they can identify it and work around it next time, have another crack. Yeah, and, and as you say, there is a historically in Australia, failure meant you're, you were rubbish and don't come back. Yeah, precisely. That has stultified... Um, funding, finding funds for good ideas? Yeah, it has. It's also led to the, to the smart innovators in Australia leaving the country in order to access a better environment. You know, we, we have a lot of successful companies that have started in Australia and have moved out of the country in order to expand. You know, I mean, in the technology space, one of the you know, classic ones like Atlassian that have rehomed themselves out of Australia so they can, in fact, provide share option incentives so they can get access to better, you know, better tax treatment in general and so they can get access to better VC markets. And there's more VC available in other countries, partly, again, because the environment rewards this whole process, this whole innovation cycle, better than it does here. Now, I'm involved with a number of you know, investments in Australia and some companies that, try, you know, that, that work, in, work in, in providing venture capital and using it to grow companies here. So, so it's worth being clear that there is plenty of innovation happening here. People are still investing here. I'm one of them. But it's a lot harder market to work in than it should be. Yeah, partly is it because we're smaller or, or just that we, we aren't as adventurous as we might be? That's a great question. I mean, we are clearly smaller, but innovation is not something that is, that is negatively impacted by size nearly as much as you might think. You know, innovation has to happen in clusters. You know, it's part of why I've got Base 64 in Adelaide. The idea is to make a cluster where innovation occurs, right? A set of innovative people sitting in, in a common environment. So I don't think size is the main issue. The government needs to improve some of its investment settings around share options, and I think we just need to keep believing in ourselves enough to keep taking the risks. Yeah, we, I mean, you still get, despite the fact that Victoria and South Australia are going to suffer enormously through the loss of the automotive industry, yeah. there's still a feeling around that we're the lucky country, and indeed we are, but aren't we sort of sitting on the edge of let's do something different because maybe it's not going to be so good later? Absolutely, and I think think we all kind of have a bit of a you know, a bit of a tendency to rest on our laurels. You know, we 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 traditionally were a country that grew on the sheep's back, and the last few decades we've clearly grown on the back of the mining industry, and it has sustained wealth in this country to an to you know to an enormous extent. When that boom ends, you know, you know, we need to we need to replace it with something. You know, now's the time to be investing in in, in a new wave. And very clearly, the internet era we live in means that new wave can be much more intellectual than it is physical. All of those, all of those, that ore that's turned into building, building all these wonderful computers that we can use. You know, now we need to actually use our minds to amplify it into something new. And if we don't do that, then yeah, we absolutely are at a decent risk of slipping behind against other countries that make better investments in their own innovation cycles. And again, for governments, that isn't so much about spending more money. It is, in that traditional government sense, about getting the settings right. You mentioned Base 64. Tell us about that. That You're sitting in a heritage building in Adelaide? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lovely heritage building in Adelaide, um, 1865 Heritage Listed Mansion, that since 1865 has had a cluster of other buildings built around it. So now it's a courtyard of buildings or a set of buildings around a courtyard. And I'm in the process of, of renovating that structure. We've been renovating it for more than a year. It'll be 
done in a few months time and it's going to turn into into multiple things a head office for for my my future investments and interests in general is in one corner of that uh, there's a lovely courtyard and set of meeting spaces to get people together to talk about life the universe and everything and that that is a deliberate part of the structure is a place to encourage people to converse and exchange ideas it's a co-working space co-working spaces are on the rise these days and it's it's like the Qantas lounge but you don't have a plane to catch it's just it's a place where you've got gigabit rate internet good coffee interesting conversation so if you want to work on the next big thing it's a more salubrious place to do it than, than your bedroom and you might be able to have ideas rub off on on your next door neighbor and then there's a variety of, of office-like spaces in the building, very comfortable ones. We've designed to make it designed it in a very very comfortable manner, where if those ideas grow into little companies, then we've got some places where where we can incubate some of those companies around us. So the idea is to make a little cluster of innovative things happen in a little old Adelaide, and just you know plant a few seeds and see what what plants we can grow. You probably grow some pretty good ones, I think, because there is a suggestion from Canberra that uh, universities shouldn't do research, they should simply be schools, which seems to me to be quite counter to the proper idea of a university. Things like Base 64 could replace, if, if indeed that sad thing happens, Base 64 could move in on that. Yeah, I guess the potential's there to do that. And certainly we're seeing some big shifts in the world in the last 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 some decades because, as we're all aware, a lot of wealth has shifted to individuals um, more so than it has in the past. Some of those individuals, literally led by the best known of them, people like, you know, people like the Bill Gates of the world, are putting an awful lot of that, fun, that sort of money back into doing things that arguably governments and universities used to do. And I don't think it's necessary or healthy for that to completely to replace the university system. I agree with you. I think universities can and should continue to be a place where, where great research happens and where there's the linkage between teaching people and showing them how research works and then connecting them into, into the commercial sector. But the lines are blurring these days, and, and that's not entirely a bad thing because sometimes people that have managed to, to do well in business that want to then stimulate the next round of businesses can do things in a more agile way than, it, than a government might, might tend to do. So there's certainly space for that to happen. Uh, but yeah, I strongly agree. Uh, the, the, dis the distinction between a university and a, and a trade school is that you are doing things that are related to higher learning. Higher learning for its abstract, its abstract aims is a valuable thing because that's where these fabulous new ideas come from. And much, much more so than in the past in, in the modern world, real innovation these days is coming from taking disparate fields and joining them up. So it's very much about communication. It's very much about not just researchers sitting in their own kind of narrow realm, but about cross-pollinating between one field of research and another. It's with so much in this world where we you, you add you know, research field A to research field B and you discover a new way of changing, you know, a new way of making something happen. Yeah, well, we, and Australia has done that. I mean, you've got right. the examples of Wi-Fi, you've got the example of uh, Agilent Technology, which... Um, quite almost accidentally invented a system that is used in every PA, uh, every um, tele telephone system in the world and as part of their billing regime. Oh, oh. Um, and that was over cups of coffee in a laboratory out in uh, Clayton in Melbourne. Yeah, and this is just it. The, the Australia has a fabulous history of doing this and indeed as, as we're both aware, Clayton and Melbourne's had a lot of innovation. Telstra Research Labs sat in, sat, um, in Melbourne for the longest time doing fabulous things. You know, it's still out there too, but it's yeah, you've, you've actually got to do it. We live in one of the luxuries of being in a first world country in, in the modern era of the, of the history of human beings is this luxury of, of dreaming large about what it is we choose to spend our, our, our efforts on, what we choose to research, what we choose to strive for. 
um, you know, it's it's no accident that, that when Google looks at big projects these days, they call them moonshots. You know, the, the original moonshot was such an exercise in that. You know, it was an exercise in doing something ridiculously hard and the consequences of doing it that, that society now has in terms of innovations that were developed to make that thing possible are enormous. The world could use a few more moonshots. Yeah, it yeah. really could. You know, we, we are richly able to afford them as a, as a, as a world. And from those moonshots might come some genuine improvements in our environment, not just wringing our hands about how tough it is. I know a rocket scientist called Lachlan Thompson who suggests that the whole of space research has benefited the world. Mm. It hasn't benefited space at all because there's nothing out there to be benefited. Correct, yeah. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, and it is, it's an enormous field of innovation. And it is, in some senses, the classic, the classic example of, of, of humans doing something because it's out there. I mean, the, fundamentally, getting humans to Mars, something that, that Elon Musk, the founder of Tesla, will absolutely do with his other company, SpaceX. You know, it's his publicly stated goal, and no one who's bet against him has come out well. You know, he will get there. He wants to do that because he believes in, in that sort of enormously high-level innovation that's required to get there. You know, the journey is the reward. Building that capability is going to change so many industries and open so many doors. This is like the new Mount Everest, isn't yes. it? Of intellect, and now, and that's a it's a great example. You know, this day and age, it's easy to climb Everest. It's an industry. It's a tourist industry. You know, wow, what a shift, right? We're a long way from it being from it being a tourist industry going to Mars, and very much that is the next Everest. Simon Hackett, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Simon's innovation uh, experiment seems to be paying off, and he's got some very strong views, hasn't he, on uh, what should happen and what companies need to do. Yep, absolutely. So now Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kukoulos, the iron ore price is, has fallen dramatically. What impact will that have on the economy? It's our biggest export earner in dollar terms. It's the most profitable, sorry, was the most profitable part of the mining sector. And because of that, it's going to hurt the economy. Under $80 US a tonne is very, very low. And there are some producers that this is really getting close to the boundary of the cost of production. Look, the big guys, the BHPs and Rios, their cost of production is 40 to 50 odd dollars a tonne. They're okay. They're still making money. But there's these smaller ones and even Fortescue that are in the 70s that it's just getting very, very close. That's the first bad part of it. But it's also saying to me that um, the overall commodity price cycle is also weak. We've got things like coal prices, iron ore prices, even agricultural commodities. Some of their prices are quite weak at the moment. And um, for a, an economy like Australia that's heavily dependent on our exports, this is bad news. It's the terms of trade shock occurring on the downside, reversing what was basically um, a decade of, of good news on uh, commodity prices. If it's down to 77 now, I mean, how much further can it go? Oh, the, well, this is the big, big question that's very, very difficult to work out. We do know, and I've seen different reports from people who are aggregating the production from the big iron ore companies, not just the Australian ones, but um, the ones that are in South America, the ones that are starting to produce out of Africa, uh, economies like that, that there's going to be a massive increase in iron ore production. And if the Chinese economy, even if it continues to grow at 7%, which isn't bad, um, the, the demand is just not going to meet this extra supply. We have a supply side shock occurring, and we know what happens when there's excess supply. We get a glut, and what happens to prices? They keep falling. So, look, 
it, it, it's choppy, it's volatile, it's hard to forecast, but the, but even with the decent economic growth out of China, um, there's just so much of the stuff being produced now that you'd have to say the risks still favour lower prices over the next uh, 6 to 12 months. Now, the budget papers and the government forecasts were for a iron ore price around about $107. Yes. And so it's, it's much lower now. The last time this happened was when Wayne Swan was treasurer and suddenly all talk of surpluses went out the window. How will this affect government revenues? It costs the government a fortune. You know, one of the issues, and you, you hit the nail right on the head, one of the issues with this perennial debate about returning to surpluses and all this other stuff that we have in Australia, um, the problems of the last few years, if we can call them that on the budget, have not been through excessive expenditure. The spending to GDP ratios right now are actually about the average of the last 30 or 40 years. We're not spending much more or much less. Spending's not the problem. The problem of getting the budget back to balance or back to surplus is revenue. And one of the critical things that's hurt the economy and hurt the budget over the last few years and will probably be starting to hurt now is weak nominal growth, low inflation, disinflation problems, and this iron ore price that we just discussed. And when you put in things like the very weak wages growth, uh, if, if people aren't getting big wage increases, they're not paying as much PAYG income tax to the government. So you put this low inflation, low wages, low commodity prices into your budget forecasting mix. And even if you revise down your revenue projections by 1% or 2%, 1% of revenue now is over, uh, over $4 billion per annum. So if you're revising it down by 2%, which looks to be possible given what's happening on these variables that we just mentioned, you could be seeing uh, the budget numbers being undermined by, you know, something close to $8, $10 billion simply because the economy and commodity prices and inflation and wages are so very low. And that is very bad news for the government. It's bad news for the government. So when they're framing their budget, we... Uh, we get the MIEFO, the Mid-Year Economic and Fiscal Outlook, uh, probably November, December. We don't have a set date yet. That will give us an update of revised economic parameters, revised decisions that they've taken, including the cost of things like the Iraq war and uh, security measures they're taking, which are, are not cheap. Um, we'll see an updated budget projections, and it'll include all these numbers that we're just talking about now on commodity prices, and it would be a massive shock if there's not a significant deterioration in the budget bottom line. So when Mr Hockey gets up there towards the end of the year and says, well, here's our updated projections, it's unlikely that they'll be showing anything other than a significant deterioration in the budget bottom line. And um, he'll just have to manage that whether he... Well, there's a, there's a separate question that comes in at that point, because if it's because the economy is a bit weaker... Uh, does he let the automatic stabilisers let the budget get even worse, or does he become very stubborn and say, well, I still want to get to surplus in a couple of years, and he goes ahead with more spending cuts at a time when the economy is weak? That's going to be his dilemma. That will have to be an issue the government will have to face up to if they want to move it into surplus. Yeah, yeah indeed. Well, I think it's fair to say that the, the surplus objective is very difficult now, and it's... Um, and. A significant part of that is just outside the control of government. It's, as we said, it's just commodity prices falling. Well, that's not the government's fault um, that iron ore is at $77 a tonne and, um, you know, six months ago it was $110 or $120 a tonne. That's, that's one of the factors that you deal with when you're managing a budget and managing an economy, and particularly like Australia, which is open, trade-exposed and all the rest of it. We do fluctuate in line with uh, global conditions more often than not. But that's a question that, again, I think they'll have to seriously rethink about this whole issue, particularly... And this is the other issue that's going to be so interesting over the next few months. If this unemployment rate, which has been above 6% for the last two months, if it stays there, 
let alone if it increases back up towards six and a quarter or six and a half percent, then do we see, well, um, a complete change of view on the on the budget? Do we say, well, we need some stimulus measures, heaven forbid, rather than rather than austerity to get back to surplus? Should we be running a bigger deficit? Because unemployment at six and a half percent means that there's almost going to be a million people unemployed if we get that high. That, of course, will affect government revenues as well because there'll be fewer people paying tax and more going out on uh, dole payments. The other, the other big issue too, of course, is the dollar. I mean, that's been sliding uh, because the uh, increased confidence in the US. What, uh, what do you see ahead for the, the Aussie dollar? Yeah, look, it's, it's fallen from 93-ish, uh, literally four, four weeks ago, to now being 87 cents or thereabouts, give or take. Um, Look, it's been a long overdue correction or move towards normality. Look, based on the scenario that we've just spoken about, soft commodity prices, an improvement in the US economy, the Australian economy sort of muddling along, not bad, but could be doing better, could be stronger. It spells to me that the dollar's got further to fall. You know, how far is a difficult question. It wouldn't surprise me. Look, in a sense, we've only fallen six cents. Uh, Not even the Aussie dollar falls, it falls a good 10 to 12 to 15 cents over a 12-month period. So perhaps once we get into, you know, the early part of 2015, we could easily see the Aussie in the very low 80s, heaven forbid, even in the high 70s, if this commodity price cycle remains weak. Now, that's a slightly helpful story for the economy because it encourages our... um, Firms that are competing with cheap imports and uh, exporters to do a little bit better, uh, but it takes a while for that to happen. The dollar just falling there for a few weeks isn't going to change the way people behave and tourism flows and these sorts of things. If it stays there for six months, 12 months or more, then of course it changes the whole cycle and it, it actually aids our competitiveness if this Aussie dollar stays low, which I suspect it will. Well, Qantas has been talking about how good it is for the Aussie dollar to be falling, but uh, you'd say that's a bit too premature. Premature, yes. People don't change their holidays on the exchange rate going from 93 to 87 cents. <laughs> if it stays there, it changes people's attitudes. So you know, one of the things that we did learn from the Aussie being persistently in the 90s or let alone above parity for the last few years uh, was that we Australians increasingly holidayed in very cheap, California and Bali and went to Asia and all the rest of it because it was so damn cheap. It was very, very cheap. And even this little fall, people aren't cancelling their holidays because the exchange rate's fallen 5 or 6 or 7%. It's not that big a deal yet. But come 12 months' time, if the Aussie's still in the low 80s or, as I said, in the high 70s, then you'll completely reassess your holiday plans and you'll holiday in Australia, not overseas. And for foreign tourists who we want to come here, who looked at Australia and thought, oh, gee, it's expensive when the exchange rate was at parity or for education services when they looked at the cost of going sending their kids to a university in Australia at parity, and there's pretty good universities in the UK and the US, um, at 80 cents, all of a sudden it becomes much, much more attractive. It's you know, 20% more attractive to send your uh, kids here to holiday in Australia. So it takes a while for these things to permeate through the thinking and the costing of these things. So the dollar just does need to stay here for a few weeks or a few months. It's got to be a more permanent shift. And by permanent, I mean a year or two, staying at these lower levels. And you're saying even high 70s? Look, it's possible. If you look at, gosh, forecasting currencies is hazardous, as we know. But if you look at some very simple exchange rate modelling, and you put in the terms of trade for Australia, you put in uh, what's happening to the global economy, which is okay, but certainly not strong. You put in very low inflation in Australia, uh, and you put these sorts of um, uh, variables into your equation, you do get a number below 80 cents, yes. Stephen Coolers, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's going to be, we're in for a very tough period, I think. 
Yeah, quite clearly. And uh, yes, it's not going to get good anytime soon by the look of it. No, no, not with that iron ore price. Going the dollars down again this morning and uh, looks like the iron ore price is going to head uh, well down under 70. Okay, now the news. Well, first of all, Gary, China's industrial profits fell 0.6% to 482.5 million won. That's about $89.4 billion in August from a year before, according to uh, official data. That's the latest in a slew of weak data from the world's second biggest economy. And the decline in profit growth compared sharply with July's 13.5% increase. And it represents the first such drop since August 2012. It also follows a series of disappointed economic data in August that shows China's economy is worsening rapidly despite stimulus measures taken by the Beijing. The average price of new homes in 70 Chinese cities fell at a faster pace in August at the same time as foreign direct investment in the country dropped to a four-year low and China's been forced to loosen its mortgage restrictions to prop up the country's flagging housing market which is becoming a bigger drag on the world's second biggest economy and so the People's Bank of China says purchases of second homes can now be considered to be first-time home buyers which gives them access to lower down payments and mortgage rates providing they pay off any existing mortgage debt from their first purchase and this marks the first direct action taken by the central government this year. And, of course, it's going to foster the shadow banking because they'll want to borrow money to pay off their mortgage. Absolutely. Better news coming out of the US. Uh, consumer outlays arose in August, a sign that stronger household spending could support US economic growth in the third quarter. Now, personal expenditures, what, that's what Americans spend on anything from groceries to emergency room visits, rose a season adjusted 0.5% last month. That's according to the Commerce Department. Still, American consumers pulled back from their economic optimism in September, signalling that recovery has some way to go. The conference board says its index of consumer confidence fell to 86 in September. That's down from 93.4. The August index reading was the highest since October 2007 before the last recession started. Okay. So that's good. Now, bad news coming out of the Eurozone. Businesses and consumers across the 18 countries that share the euro are more downbeat about their prospects in September than in any other time since the end of 2013. That probably reflects disappointment with the pace of the eurozone's economic recovery and the conflict in the Ukraine. The European Commission said its economic sentiment indicator fell to 99.9 in September. That's down from 100.6 in August. And that decline in confidence also indicates that new stimulus measures announced by the European Central Banks in early September have so far failed to convince households and business leaders that the economic outlook's going to improve. And businesses are saying their selling prices are weaker and indeed... The annual rate of inflation in the Eurozone fell further between the European Central Bank's target in September to its lowest level since October 2009. Now, it's now tracking at 0.3% higher than it was in September 2013. That's down from 0.4% in August. And uh, the inflation rate in the Eurozone has now been below 1% for 12 straight months. And they won't want it to go any much lower, will they? No, well, it just means uh, people selling goods aren't making any money. That's right. Some interesting stuff coming out of Australia, and Australia is the land of the free and the heavily indebted. <laughs> Tell me about it. According to the latest um, figures, the amount Australians owe on their mortgages has not up, notched up at its fastest annual growth for three and a half years. The figures add weight to the comment by the Reserve 
Reserve Bank of Australia in its financial stability review last week that the housing credit had become unbalanced. It's going to encourage the RBA to use macro prudential tools like rules and regulations rather than interest rates to rein in lending and prevent a dangerous boom-bust cycle in the housing market. Housing debt rose by 7.7 billion or 0.6% between July and August. That lifted annual growth from 6.5% to 6.7%. That's the highest since 2011, Gary. It's it's obvious. I mean, the how whatever the police say, uh, it's a problem. It's even more. Loans to home buyers rose zero point four percent or three point seven billion to nine hundred eighteen point eight billion. But the value of debts owed by housing investors surged by at twice that rate in August, lifting by zero point eight percent or three point seven billion to four hundred seventeen point one billion. And the rise in the six months to August nine point nine percent on an annualised basis. That's the fastest since two. 2007, before the global financial crisis bid into the bank's ability to link. And if that growth continues, uh, total housing credit is going to rise by another $113 billion to reach $1.5 trillion around October next year. Well, we've already got softening in the Melbourne housing market, although Sydney's still, still on fire. But, uh, you know, if prices did drop suddenly, uh, we're, people are in a load of trouble. On the budget, Gary, the Abbott government has raised the white flag on up to $30 billion of four-year budget savings and decided to push the remaining few measures which have Senate support through the Parliament before recasting its budget strategy in December. And the Senate standoff, a slump in iron ore prices, the soft economic outlook and a potential multi-billion dollar bill for new military equipment in the Middle East has put a cloud over the government's forecast that the budget deficit's going to shrink from $48.5 billion to $30 billion this financial year. And it also raises questions about the shape of its structural savings in the future years. Yeah, they're talking about cutting um, foreign aid to pay for the uh, Middle Eastern event. Well, yeah, well, the government started work on a new alternate range of savings uh, like that, and it's going to be unveiled in the mid-year review of the budget in December, and it will present these options as a necessary alternative if the budget is um, to be repaired in the face of Senate intransigence. And the Coalition's higher education plans, which would have seen the price of a degree skyrocket, also appear doomed. Clive Palmer has confirmed his party is not going to support deregulating fees. Government cut funding cuts for university or increasing the interest rate on student loan payments. And nor would the PUP accept the Medicare or pharmaceutical benefits scheme, co-payments, and consequently the government will is expected to roll over on some of its higher education reforms before Parliament rises at the end of the year. And it will push the medical co-payment through Parliament in the foreseeable future, but we don't know when. Well, no, and we don't know how either. That's right. Because the way things are going, uh, the Senate's not going to change. Well, you know, the, the government's facing resistance from Labor, the Greens, the Palmer United Party and various independents. So the government has conceded the Senate is expected to pass only three billion dollars worth of proposed welfare cuts and it will block others worth a combined 10 billion dollars so these new cuts will be announced in the mid-year budget to pay for close to uh, 1 billion in extra spending to fight islamic state islamic state terrorists and never forget the burqa (laughs) never forget the burqa no Um, and uh, also worryingly enough the Abbott government was warned the Australian tax office is ill-equipped to tackle a potential multi-billion dollar international tax dodge because it's cutting ATO staff at a time when Treasurer Joe Hockey is touting Australia's efforts in conjunction with the G20 to close international tax loopholes, the tax office no longer has a dedicated team fighting the problem. And a report by the Independent Inspector General of Taxation has raised concern about an exodus of experienced staff from the ATO at a time when money flowing between Australian companies and their foreign subsidiaries has topped $270 billion. That accounts to more than half the Commonwealth budget, Gary. Interesting, Jerry Harvey was... Uh 
talking last night and saying, uh, criticising Australian companies who are using offshore tax yeah. havens. Uh, but the issue is many of the ATO's most experienced staff in tracking international profits are now working for the big four accounting firms and they're actually helping the country's biggest companies minimise their tax. You mean the government shot itself in the other foot? That's right, that's right. And meanwhile, the iron ore price has sunk to a new five-year low. It's now trading at around $77 a tonne. And the latest fall was driven by rising fears surrounding China's demands as industrial profits showed softness. It's unlikely to resolve itself because Vale, BHP Billet and Fortescue Metal Group and Rio Tinto are ramping up production. Now it's going to drive the price further down because the Chinese have got stockpiles. That's right, that's right. Now, um... All of that has pushed export commodity prices down by 2.4% and to a level 37% below their peak. Now, iron ore was the biggest culprit, but um, there was also price falls for base metals and coal and uh, other rural commodities. Yeah. Also, the Australian dollar has fallen to an eight-month low. It's uh, trading at around 86.84 cents last I saw. Mm-hmm. And it's dropped, so far in September, it's dropped 6.8%. That's the biggest fall since May last year. And it's going to weaken against rallying greenback because of an interest rate hike by uh, the US Federal Reserve is getting closer. Well, it could you could see interest rates rising here too if, they, if the RBA moves on the house. Housing question. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, ag- and meanwhile, um, activity in Australia's manufacturing sector has contracted further in September as the unwinding of the car industry overshadows a big fall in the Australian dollar. According to the Australian Industry Group, their manufacturing index slipped 0.8 points to 46.5. That's down from 47.3 in August. And retail sales have just risen 0.1%, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, to $23.3 billion. The stock market is trading below the level at which it started in 2014. After a shocker month in September, wiped out all the gains of the first eight months per year and took $90 billion off the value of Australian shares, Gary. Yeah, that's right. And I noticed that um, America and Europe and uh, London are all down more than 1%. Currently. Well, the the big problem here is you've had dramatic falls in the value of the dollar and the iron ore, and that's contributed to the fall. And uh, finally, Gary, uh, while we're talking about the stock market, the Australian government has opened the pre-registration process for the initial public offering of Medibank Private, which is estimated to be around $5.7 billion. Hoyts is stepping up plans to launch a $900 million IPO on the local stock market before Christmas after creating a buzz on an international roadshow, and Treasury Wine Estate has stopped its takeover talks with suitors Colberg, Kravis, Roberts and Co., and its junior partner, Rowan Capital, and also TPG Capital, after failing to win enough shareholder support for either proposal. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon. That's terrific. And uh, we'll be back a week from now, and we'll be having a nice interview with... Jen George. She's the CEO of OneShift, the company that matches job seekers to employers. And... That's kind of handy right now. That's right. And so in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.